was talking to Simon about how he manages to preach without notes. <laughs> and I can't, so I'm sorry. I have to read. <laughs> but anyway, here we are, the wise and foolish builders. I have mixed feelings about builders. I have some really close friends who build and carpent. And the second set of builders who worked on our barn were brilliant. More about that later. But I do associate builders with mess and disruption and disturbance. I have an enduring memory of a poorly three-year-old Susie when in the middle of winter, our house that we lived in before the barn, every single room was affected by building in some way or another. And the whole back of the house was exposed to the elements with just plastic. Oh, that was grim. So the wiseness or foolishness of builders has not been so important to me as the tidiness and the (laughs) containedness of them. Anyway, this parable, a story with a meaning. Jesus uses building a house to illustrate a momentous truth in a way that could be easily understood by everyone. Everyone then would have witnessed houses being built and they might well have built their own house. That's not something that many of us do these days. This is a parable that I think most of us have known since we were very young. And I have sung the chorus, the wise man built his house upon the rock for more years than I care to remember. And we're still singing it at Top Street Tots. <laughs> it's a great little song. But the final verse is one that doesn't often get sung at toddler groups. And it says, build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessings will come down. The prayers go up and the blessings come down. Hmm, I'm not quite sure about that. Yes, there are blessings, definitely, but there are hardships too, and following Jesus doesn't exempt us from that. We often refer at the chapel here to the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, where Jesus says the the last should be first, where the weak are considered strong and where enemies are loved. Our society views that as a bit back to front, but actually in heavenly terms, it's the right way around. So I'm going to start a little bit back to front this morning because I'm speaking about the last section of the Sermon on the Mount, even though we haven't finished the series yet. Christy's going to do that next week. Yeah. And the back-to-front nature of my talk continues because today we're going to begin with the last two verses of chapter 7. I was struck by the fact that Matthew felt it was important to make these additional comments about Jesus' authority at the end of his sermon. And I'm beginning mine with these verses. Hopefully to act as a sort of lens with which to view the parable. I wonder if Matthew's report, summing up the effect that this sermon had had on the crowds, was because he wants us, the readers, 
to fully grasp the enormity of what has been said and more to the point, who said it with what authority. We need to remember who Jesus is. God himself wrapped in skin. That's why he can say the things that he does. Just read these two verses again. The last two. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who has authority and not as the teachers of the law. They were amazed. The people recognised he had authority. Nothing like their normal teachers and scribes and Pharisees. Teachers of the law who taught from the Torah, the Old Testament scripture used to teach the Jewish faith. The scribes and Pharisees and teachers would use comments and ideas from other rabbis and famous names. And to be fair, I'm sure we all do that in our sermons. That's what we do. Uh, I don't think anybody would be quoting me in any soon sermon, mind you. But um, that's what they would do. They would quote from scripture as well. And sadly, they would pile extra laws in order to make it harder for the people to follow the faith. These teachers were criticised by Jesus in Luke 11 because he said, you load the people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. So I think the Jewish people would often regard their teachers with a certain amount of fear. Jesus was radically different. This was his approach. He would begin with statements like, I say to you, or I tell you, I tell you the truth. The old authorised says, verily, verily, I say unto you. Those were the verses I used to learn as a kid. And he quoted from scripture. And in this sermon, particularly, he takes Old Testament truths and helps the people really understand them. For example, when he teaches on adultery, he says, you have heard it said, and then he goes on to explain that even looking at another woman inappropriately is committing adultery in your heart. It's actually much more challenging. Jesus was underlining that just strict observance of the law did not show what was going on inside. People look at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. God said this to Samuel in the Old Testament when Samuel was starting to choose a king from a group of burly brothers that were presented to him. God had already chosen. He wanted the youngest, the most insignificant, the one who wasn't even put forward. Again, upside down kingdom. People look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. And the reason this sermon resonated with such truth is that Jesus was talking about himself, his kingdom. So of course he was the ultimate authority. And somehow the people recognised it. Maybe it had to do with the fact that they had already seen him doing extraordinary things. Things that happened through him 
and around him before this sermon was preached. They had seen him healing many people. Matthew 4, 7 said he was healing every sickness and disease among the people. They had seen him casting out demons. Matthew 4, 24 says the demon possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, he healed them. Then they had seen him baptised by the famous preacher in the desert, the locust eater, John the Baptist. The crowds had witnessed a voice from heaven speaking over him as he came out of the water, saying, this is my son, uh, who I love. With him I am well pleased. Such were the astounding events that surrounded Jesus. The people had seen, so they knew there was something incredible about him. They were amazed by the words he spoke in this sermon that had been backed up by his actions. He taught the crowds and also individuals that there is a kingdom of heaven that they could be a part of. He used parables and stories to explain that the kingdom was not a physical place, not yet for us. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God used interchangeably in the Bible means the rule and reign of God over heaven and earth. And Jesus taught that to enter this kingdom, you must turn from sin and repent, say sorry and resolve to commit to God's way of living. This was a challenging new concept for the Jewish people to accept. Just say sorry. They'd been used to sacrificing animals, to strict rituals to obey in order to be forgiven. To hear this new rabbi teacher make these statements was revolutionary. But what they couldn't know then was that he who stood before them was the ultimate sacrifice that would forever brush aside the need for ritual sacrifice of animals. Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take the sin of the world upon himself as he hung on the cross and then rose again, defeating death itself. He was not just words, he was action. Two, the most important action, Simon mentioned it before, in all of space and time, a pivotal moment in history when God, the creator of everything, completed the most incredible rescue plan for humanity as he bled and died on the cross, taking the punishment for all sin, past, present, future so that we, his creation, could be restored into his kingdom forever. Jesus is not just about words, he's about action too. So the parable, it's about words and actions. Both builders, Jesus is careful to repeat, had the same conditions exactly. Both went to build a house, both houses experienced exactly the same rain and streams and wind 
beating on their houses. But one built on rock and one on sand. There was a choice. They would have both known the proper way to build. There's no suggestion here that the foolish man didn't know what to do. He made a choice. The easy one. The wide road. Verse 25 says that the wise man's house did not fall because it had its foundation on rock. To make a foundation, you have to dig down and you start building underground. It's hard work. The narrow road. Last time we visited our friends, Eve Rose and Pierre Richard in Haiti, we watched from the old house, the new foundations being dug in the rocky soil by hand to prepare for the new house. Back-breaking, exhausting work in the heat of the day. But the foolish man, there's no suggestion of any foundation. He just built it on top of the sand. Apparently, the sand in the Israeli desert can pack down really, really hard so that you can walk on it. I mean, you sometimes find that on beaches, don't you, where it doesn't, the crust doesn't quite break through. But also in the desert, you get flash floods that instantly wash away and carve out and erode the, the sand away. So before the elements came to hit the foolish man's house, you wouldn't necessarily see the difference until you dug down and found that the house was just plonked on the surface. Remember, people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. They both built, one built well, and the other built badly. That old chorus, would lead us to believe maybe that the parable is about the storms of life that affect us all, that are easier to withstand with a firm foundation of faith. But I wonder perhaps if there's a deeper meaning with more eternal consequences. Maybe the storm is judgment, where the foundations of both houses are exposed and questioned. And we'll all come to stand before God on Judgment Day. In last week's sermon, Simon drew out the very stark statement in verse 21 that says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And the reality is that there is a narrow gate that few find. Jesus says, not everyone who hears these words will put them into action. But hearing and listening are a little bit different. As Christy will tell you, trying to get our lovely kids at Connect to listen is a challenge. I wonder how many times over the years you have said, Listen, or you won't know what to do. <laughs> Every week. Many times a week. Hearing is a physical act that only involves the ears. 
whereas listening uses the brain to interpret the sounds. The Hebrew word shema is used in the original and it means paying attention, understanding and obeying. The word shema was given to an ancient prayer taken from the Torah, from Deuteronomy. And it is about hearing the word of God and obeying it. It's a lovely prayer in Deuteronomy 6, I think, and 4 and 5 and other bits also. It's still used in synagogues today. This parable teaches that there is a choice of obedience to be made. I referred earlier to when we built the barn that we live in. I talked about the second brilliant builders. The first builder cut corners. He used the wrong roof tiles. He didn't put in a waterproof membrane behind the wood cladding. But far more importantly, my father noticed one day that the actual structure, the wooden structure, the frame, had not been secured to the foundations. It had just been plonked on top. It needed steel pins drilled through deep into the wood and concrete to properly secure the building. And our second builders did that wonderfully. But our first builder made a wrong choice about foundations. I suppose you could say he was the archetypal, archetypal foolish man. The parable tells us that if we have not listened and put into practice the words that Jesus preached, and if our lives are not built on the foundation of Jesus, the rock, then the Bible says, Jesus says, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We will be separated from God for all eternity. And that is horrifying. And Simon said last week, it's not often preached. But if we don't preach it, how will people know the perilous sand that they're building their lives on? But there is a choice. If we have listened and put into practice the, Jesus, the words that Jesus spoke and built the foundations of our lives on him, then we will enter the kingdom of heaven and live there, starting here and now, in the spiritual sense, but later when we die, in the reality of a physical kingdom, it will be our home. It will be where we meet God face to face, experiencing love and joy <coughs> and peace forever. In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, which foretells the coming kingdom of heaven, it says that this will be a place where there will be no more sorrow or crying or pain. So what does this listening, hearing and doing look like for us practically here and now? As I said at the beginning, the first step is repentance, turning away from our sin and accepting the free gift of forgiveness that Jesus offers us. Then choosing to commit to following Jesus in every area of our lives. This is how we enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and we begin to live our lives in it. It's a 
180 degrees turnaround. And it's almost like being reborn. We don't earn our way into the kingdom by being good. Jesus does call us, though, to listen to these words of mine and act on them. And I like the way J. John writes in this book, which is called The Life, A Portrait of Jesus. And he says that we often misunderstand Jesus' teaching on living in the kingdom. Two errors have been made about Jesus' teaching on how to live in the kingdom. The first is to imagine that trying to be good grants you entry into the kingdom. That is wrong. The clear teaching of Jesus is that the kingdom is a gift, not a reward. The second error is to think that entry into the kingdom excludes the need to try to be good. It doesn't. Jesus expected his followers to live out lives that were good and pure and moral. Being good is neither an entering requirement to the kingdom nor an optional extra for those who live in it. That last bit, I like it. Being good is neither an entering requirement to the kingdom nor an optional extra for those who live in it. So... The question, I suppose, is, have we listened and taken action? If we say we are his followers, but our foundations are not in place, if we don't love our enemies and bless those who curse us, if we don't forgive freely and quickly, if we don't give generously and secretly, if we don't pray to our Father in heaven, if we don't take the narrow road, just to mention a few of the incredibly high standards that Jesus sets in this, his greatest sermon. If we don't do these things, then we are on dangerous, sandy ground. But Jesus is our rock. He knows that we're not going to achieve sinlessness. Only he could do that. But what he did was to give us something. When we enter the kingdom, we also receive his spirit, the Holy Spirit. We were talking about that at our breakout group, weren't we, on Tuesday. The Holy Spirit helps us to hear the words of Jesus, to understand them and put them into action. So, today, are we listening? Have we made the right choice? Have we heard the words of Jesus and put them into action? Amen. Amen.